Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Judges today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you have it on your phone, begin to make your way to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3 and, and uh, verses 7 through 12 is really where we're going to spend our time. So in the, the course of this series, of course, we're not able to go in and, and do an in-depth study on absolutely everything that is transpiring within the Old Testament. So I encourage you, if you've not given yourself uh, to a careful examination of God's Word, if you've not ever read through the Old Testament, if you find yourself really being uh, unfamiliar with it, I think it would be a profitable exercise for you to read through there. I know God's Word would speak to you richly as you come to understand how He speaks to us uh, through the entirety of the corpus of the Bible, all 66 books, all testifying of Christ and all testifying to God's character. And so last week as we left off with uh, the character of Moses, one of the things we recognized in this is Moses' failure. And because of Moses' failure, he wasn't able to enter into the promised land. And so the, the, the mantle shifts from Moses to Joshua. And so as the book of Joshua opens up, what we find is that uh, the, the leadership formerly entrusted to Moses has been handed over to Joshua, and Joshua prepares to lead them into the promised land. Now, the promised land is something they've waited for uh, for a, a, a great period of time, and in some sense, this kind of sense of expectation and longing has been engendered in their hearts, asking them to long for, to wait for, to look for something they've never experienced. This land flowing of milk and honey, this land that yields its fruit in its season, this land that they didn't uh, plow the ground, it live in cities that they did not build. And so all these things have built into this tremendous sense of expectation. And so what rests for them on the other side of the Jordan is the unrestricted favor and blessing of God as evident in the land. But even as they prepare to cross the land, cross over the river into the land, these words of Moses from Deuteronomy 11 and 13 through 17 echo. Moses warned them and he says, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today and love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and take in your wine and your oil. And he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. But listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, take care lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and you serve other gods and you worship them. Moses had this crystallized understanding that as they moved into the land, as they began to experience the blessing of God, that there was going to be this pull towards disobedience, that there would be this pull towards complacency, towards abandonment of the Lord, even in the face of his blessings. And so he offered them this warning. He said, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And so what we recognize in the book of Judges is that as it opens up, we're told that 
Joshua has died. And so he lives to 110. And, and over the course of his life, while he is working in the promised land with them, they are driving out the inhabitants of the land. They're living faithfully before the Lord. They're doing what God has asked them to do and under the direction of Joshua. But when Joshua dies, we begin to get a sense that there are two primary failures that are evident within the people of God, within his special people, even within their efforts in the land. So as you look at the book of Judges and just kind of think of it conceptually, what we see is that chapters 1 and 2 become this kind of introduction to the whole book. And chapters 3 through 16 really give us this series of these 12 judges and all of their stories. And the most famous of which we would say is Samson because we all want glorious, long, flowing locks. But, and then what we see in 17 through 21 is this fantastically destructive picture of the moral decay and what has taken place in the midst of these things. But look at the first two glimmers that things aren't going well in the land. In chapter 1, verses 27 through 36, we see a summary of all of their various failures. Just look quickly. It says, Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen in the villages, or Tanakh in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, and just on and on and on. They didn't do this. They failed to do that. They didn't push it all the way. They did not honor the Lord their God in living out what he instructed them to do. So they failed to obey the Lord, but they also failed to pass on their faith. They failed to pass on their faith. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 10, we, we, we've just read about the death of Joshua starting in verse 6. And then verse 10 it says, And all that generation, speaking of the generation that came over with Joshua, were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them. Look at this. Who did not know the Lord. That did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So what is he saying there? He's saying essentially there's, there's this, this significant failure on the part of their parents, on the part of their grandparents, to pass on their faith. Of course, we would recognize over the course of our lives that we cannot live off the faith of another. And so if you're a wife primarily striving to live on the sufficiency of your husband's faith, he will fail. If you are a husband seeking to live on the sufficiency of your wife's faith, she will fail. Fail. If you're a child seeking to live on the sufficiency of your parents' faith, they will fail. It is imperative that faith is entrusted and handed over and over and over again. And they fail. And their failure would have devastating consequences for God's people. So the cycle that we begin to see just over and over again in the book of Judges is this. It begins with blessing. And blessing is quickly followed by rebellion. Repeatedly what we hear is that the people did evil to the Lord. They did what was evil in his sight. And so from blessing goes to rebellion and, and the people's rebellion is met with God's justice. God visits their disobedience with his justice and he brings it near to them. And then from God's justice we see repeatedly that the people cry out under the experience of God's justice, and in the midst of these things, they're walking in repentance, and God meets their walk of repentance, and he meets their cry of distress with a deliverer. But chapter 2 and verse 16 gives us this description of these deliverers. 
It says, then the Lord raised up, and they refer to them as judges. But look at the function of the judge. The function of the judge is not primarily to say this is right and this is wrong. The function of the judge is to be a deliverer. Look at what he says the judge does. Who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So God's care for his people in response to their crying out as he meets their repentance is to bring to them a deliverer. Well, let's walk through one of these cycles. Look at verses 7 through 11 in chapter 3. We recognize that, that they're already experiencing the blessing because they're already in the land, right? The land stands for this good thing God has set aside for them. The land stands for God's kindness to them and they experience God and they experience his kindness in all the things the land provides for them. None of which they've worked for. All of which he's graciously bestowed upon them. But how do they respond to the blessings of the Lord? Verse 7, it says, In the people of Israel, in the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They didn't obey him. They didn't pass on their faith. Verses 5 and 6 tells us that they were practicing intermarriage. They had not kept themselves pure. They had not kept themselves distinct and set apart from their neighbors. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. It says, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. They abandoned serving the Lord. They abandoned worshiping him. And they preferred to worship instead the God of their pagan neighbors. Now a lot of the worship of their neighbors was, was wholly devoted towards receiving rain. Towards receiving a good harvest. And so essentially they make this calculus. We want to make sure things keep going well. We want to make sure things keep happening on time. It seems to work really well for these guys over here. We're going to give ourselves to this pursuit. But what we see is that their rebellion is met with God's justice. Look at, verses, look at verse 8. It says, therefore, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Eight years. For eight years, they experienced the consequence of their rebellion. For eight years, they lived under the heavy hand of Cushan Rishathaim, whose name translated means Cushan of double evil. For eight years, they experienced what it is to deal with the consequence of rebellion. And so you can kind of see them in the midst of these things, moving from this sense of this isn't what we deserve, we're in the land of blessing, we've suffered for 40 years, we've been so faithful to do these things, they are frustrated, and they are angry, and they are bitter, and listen to what it takes from them. Listen to what it takes for them in this period of repentance. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. There's a period in the midst of receiving the justice of God that they get to this place where they're just completely broken. 
There's just nothing left that they can do. There's nothing left that they can say. There's no more complaints that they're able to offer up. And so what they do is turn heavenward and say, Lord, save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't drive out uh, Kushan Rishathaim. We, we can't do anything to affect our current situation. Lord, save us. And God witnesses their plight. He sees his, perfectly, his perfect justice tailored for their disobedience, meeting their hearts, producing in them this sense of we have messed up. Lord, we need you. So he raises up a deliverer. He raises up a deliverer. Look at verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. The Lord sent to them a deliverer. Now, in the midst of this, there's this understanding that when we look there, there's this concrete picture of who their deliverer is. And so if you were to walk down the street and you'd say, who is their deliverer? And you'd say, it's Othniel. And, 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 and he's the embodiment of what is delivering them. And, and so it would be this absolutely correct sense that you say, absolutely, I see Othniel over here. And Othniel drove out. Cushan Rishathaim. He drove out. We are experiencing God's deliverer. And Othniel is the one that accomplished this. But if we are at this place and if we think that he is the one that satisfies and he is the one who drives it out, then we fail to recognize the mercy and the grace of God at work. See, Daniel Block says it this way. He says, for in the end, the real hero of this story is not Othniel, but is Yahweh. Yahweh hears the groans of his people. Yahweh feels pity towards his people. Yahweh provides the deliverer. And Yahweh achieves the deliverance. Othniel was the tool. Othniel was an instrument. And they experienced peace. Under the grace and mercy of God. Under the instrument of Othniel. But look at verse 12. Verse 11 has told us they had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel dies. Verse 12 says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God had saved them. God had delivered them. And they enjoyed that. But their response to God's gracious investment in them, their response to his blessing, was a response of sin. And I wonder if when we evaluate our own lives, if you're a Christian in this room, then you recognize, or you should recognize, that in salvation, God has lavished the riches of heaven on you. He has given you blessings beyond number. He has given you grace 
beyond understanding. He has covered you with mercy. But we find ourselves in the midst of our relationship with Jesus, in some sense recognizing, yes, God has saved me over here. He's bestowed this blessing upon me. But again, over and over and over again, what we find ourselves is responding to God's blessing with temporary positive response and perpetual acts of disobedience. We rebel. And a rebellion looks a myriad of different ways. Some of our rebellion is just out and out distraction. We recognize that, that concentrating on the things of the Lord and focusing on the things of the Lord is costly. So we give ourselves to other pursuits. We give ourselves to the pursuit of our work because as a people, we highly value hard workers. We give ourselves to the pursuit of education because as a society, we value education and we see education will take you. But you see, in the midst of these things, in the midst of these distractions, for us, it's not that we are doing this and doing this well. So many of us, oftentimes, what our rebellion looks like is saying, salvation is fine, it's over here, it's on dry ice, and I can come back to it anytime I need. I'm going to pursue this in the here and now. And our rebellion is quiet. Our rebellion is orderly. And our, rebe our rebellion is completely imperceptible to the people around us. Nobody knows. Nobody sees it. Because you've given yourself to being, to being confident, to being adequate, to being good at going through the motions of what the Christian life cycle looks like. Go to church, talk about things that are in the Bible, say Jesus' name when it's appropriate and not awkward. You are distracted. Some of us, it's this idea of apathy. We've forgotten that, that in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, what Jesus says of us, is demanded of us, is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And so what love for us in the midst of a relationship with the Lord looks like is saying, Lord, I'm willing to love you with an hour and a half of my time. Lord, I'm willing to love you with $5 a week in the offering plate. Lord, I'm willing to love you until what you're asking of me comes into something I'm not yet ready to relinquish. But my salvation's fine. I'm not in rebellion. Apathy's rebellion. The Lord expects of us, he asks of us, he requires of us 100% devotion. And anything less than that is sin. It is so good for us to recognize what our rebellion is. I wonder if some of us were to name our rebellion, if we would find ourselves seeking safe harbor in the midst of this list, or if you would say to yourself, I'm being nailed to the wall. I recognize I am in rebellion. Some of us over this last year, our rebellion has looked like finding a lesser deliverer. You've placed your hope and you've placed the security of your life on something or someone else. 
you recognized that your careers were threatened, you recognized your health was threatened, you recognized that your liberties were being infringed upon, and what you wanted in that moment was not the Lord, you didn't want the blessings of his salvation, you wanted him to raise up a lesser deliverer to set you free. And then when your deliverers began to disappoint, and then when your deliverers began to fall through, you were disenfranchised with the Lord. God has not failed. Our lesser deliverers always fail. Christian, do not set your heart upon being redeemed, being set aside, being held steadfast and made secure on the strength of a lesser deliverer. God will not allow it to take place. He alone is sufficient to hold us in our fears, in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of our uncertainties. God alone functions as the perfect deliverer. From the sense of rebellion, we recognize that, flow, that from this flows for the people of Israel God's justice. Now as a Christian, in the midst of these things, the good news for us is that God's justice finds us woefully inadequate to stand under the weight of. We are marred by sin, frail, and fallen. And so when God looked at us and he, he recognized our enfeebled, weak state, he said, they can't handle my justice being poured out upon them. And so what happened? In the fullness of time, he sent his son Jesus, and what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We can't handle the justice of God. We can't handle the white hot justice of God being poured out upon us. But what he gives us, Christian, in the midst of our rebellion is the abiding promising word and the steady anchor and the rudder in our faith of his Holy Spirit. God entrusts us, he gives to us, he indwells us by the power of his spirit. So when we find ourselves in the midst of apathy, when we find ourselves experiencing distraction, what we hear within the recesses of our mind is this voice coming out and saying, don't go down this road. Don't follow this path. Yes, work is good, but, but, but you need to evaluate work and, and, and worship. You've made work up here and you place worship down there. You have compartmentalized your faith and inverted the order of which God has given you. God's Holy Spirit calling us and saying over and over and over again, this is not wise. But in the midst of the calculus of life and the busyness of all the things, some of us are distracted and apathetic. So when we hear that voice cry out in our hearts, we say, I know better. The Bible speaks in Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Paul writes and says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed on the day of redemption. To hear God speaking to you, to see the truth in his word, and to disobey is to grieve the Holy Spirit. And it is rebellion. And God allows us to have this sense of disjointedness in our relationship with him. And he allows us to experience the disjointment in, in our relationships of our friends and of our family because he wants us to recognize the weight of sin. 
And he wants to use this sense of dislocation, and he wants to use this sense of sorrow, and he wants to use this sense of difficulty to let us know that rebellion is not what he has for us. That the sorrows of this world and the grief that it produces in us is not where he wants for us to live. What he wants for us is to come to him again and to confess our sins before him again. And in confessing our sins to him again, to have this period of refreshing come upon us. Because once again, we have shed ourselves from rebellion. Jesus has stood for our justice and we are drawn close to the Lord once again. God has delivered us not through the strength of our own ability, but he has delivered us before we even entered the game. The good news for you, Christian, today is that if you are living in a time of rebellion, then the way of escape in the midst of your rebellion was already entrusted to you before you ever set down the, fa- down the footpath of destruction. Jesus Christ, the Deliverer. His deliverance meets our rebellion. And his deliverance is not an invitation to license, but his his deliverance is an invitation to be broken by our sin. To look at our sin, to take it a prize love and to say, God, I have grieved the Holy Spirit. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against others. Lord, please forgive me. And at the moment our hearts are moving towards him, they are already met with the sweet embrace of a heavenly father who knew what we needed from him was his love. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Jesus breaks the cycle. Listen, if you're a Christian in here today and you are struggling with sin, and by God's sovereign power, and by God's gracious providence, and by his mercy at work within you, he is destroying your heart. Yield to his love. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 The author of the Hebrews wants them to understand what the active chastisement and the discipline of the Lord looks like. Because there's this this sense if you've experienced God's justice and if you've experienced what feels like his displeasure. That on the one hand feels like he's, he's a very angry God. And I get the distinct sense that he's done with me and that he doesn't like me. But Hebrews 12 tells us every son and daughter whom he loves, he disciplines. And he goes on further. And he says to be absent of the discipline of the Lord is not proof of his favor, but is proof of the illegitimacy of your sonship. Every son whom he loves, he chastises. If you're experiencing dislocation in your relationship with Jesus, repent. Confess. Ask his forgiveness. And know this. There is no refreshing outside of confession. 
There is no being made whole outside of coming to the Lord. But y'all, he is faithful. And he is just. Not just to cleanse you, but to make you whole again. And maybe you're in here and you say, boy, this Christianity stuff sounds terrible. You're not a believer. You don't follow Jesus. But as you evaluate your own life, you recognize that you too have a cycle. You have a cycle where things seem to go really well. I mean, it's just like everything's coming up right for you. Everything's going the way that you want it to. But in the midst of these things, for whatever reason, life just quits going well. And, and what you feel in the midst of these things is sadness, it is depression, it's rage, it's frustration. So in a moment of desperation and recognizing you have this inability to make things go right again, you say, let me just read a Bible. So you kind of flip it open, roughly in the middle, and so you find yourself in the book of Psalms, and you read, and you're like, I was never really into poetry, and you turn too far to the right, and there's a lot of imagery and revelations. So you go back to the left, and somewhere you end up in the Gospels, and you begin to read about Jesus. And, 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 and you, you don't really understand it, but for some reason, this feels like a good thing to do. You give yourself to a spot of prayer. You're not really sure what this looks like, but you find yourself in the midst of these things, talking and then feeling, this is really strange to be talking out loud to somebody I don't even believe is real. But I'm not able to fix these things. I'm not able to change these things. Perhaps you even head into Christian music, or maybe you find yourself here today. Like, I'm tired of things going wrong. I might as well go to this place over there. I know the red brick building on Wesley Street. No amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer, no amount of Christian music, no amount of church will break the cycle you find yourself on. Jesus breaks the cycle. And the good news for you in the midst of these things, in the midst of the cycle of your life, is that Jesus wants to break your cycle. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it this way. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We recognize in the midst of these that Christianity records and puts, puts forth a God who does not say, break your cycle, get your stuff in order, and then come here. Christianity records and puts forth a God who says they are incapable of breaking their own cycle. They always pull towards the ditch of sin. So in God's love and in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to come and to live a perfectly sinless life. And that at the end of his life, he took upon himself all of your sin. He took upon himself all those things that you feel like are failures. He took upon himself all those things that you feel shameful for. He took upon himself all those things that you feel sorry for. He took upon himself all of those things, and in the midst of taking them on, he suffered the wrath of God, the justice which you and I can't stand underneath. And suffering and dying, he was placed into a grave, and then he rose again three days later, overcoming sin and death. And as he sits right now at the right hand of the Father, he looks at you. 
and he says, let me break your cycle. Come to know me. The most important decision any of us can make is to recognize the incapability that any of us have to break the, our own cycles of sin. Friends, Jesus breaks the cycle. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would move and stir in our hearts. Some of us, we have been wrestling and wrangling with sin, and candidly, it is one, or it feels like it is one. It is certainly in the midst of winning the battle for our emotions. God, would you remind us of the power of your spirit to seal us? Would you alert us to the potency of your power, of your spirit to convict us of sin? And God, would you set us free? So God, I pray for the Christians who are dealing with sin, that you would set them free today. And you've not meant for us to live a life in a cycle, but you've made for us to live a life of freedom. Galatians 5 tells us that it is for freedom that we've been set free. God, help us to experience that freedom today. And God, we pray for those who've yet to submit themselves to your son. They've tried without success to end the cycles of life. They've tried without success to do well. God, would you break the cycle for them today? Would you invite them to know your son, Jesus? Would you send your spirit into their heart? God, we submit these things to you and ask that you continue to move in our hearts and in our midst as we return once again to worship you in song. Amen.